back when I was in medical school doing some of this uh, research originally at Loma Linda, I found every question that Ellen White said we should ask about a prospective mate. She had five questions for the fellas, and she was a female, so she had a lot more for the girls, 18. I did an exhaustive search of all of the material that has to do with courtship and marriage, and I looked for every question mark. And it was the same eight, 18 questions, same five questions. These are all here, questions you must ask, you must know. And uh, we will not be able to, to uh, cover the questions in, our, in the three time, um, lectures which we have, three studies. Uh, these are actually three of six, so we had to select three of the studies. And um, so to get those questions, there are many different marriage customs around the world. A internal medicine resident from another country rotated through my office a few years ago. And we got acquainted and uh, she was, uh, uh, she told me about uh, where she was born and then I asked her how she met her husband. And she didn't really want to say too much about it because it, she thought it might sound different. But I said, you know, I'm going to be giving a seminar on courtship and marriage. Can you tell me the story? And she did. Her parents <clears throat> were Hindu, are Hindu. And they responded to an ad in a Hindu magazine. And there was her prospective husband actually lived in Wichita, Kansas. They lived uh, in another country. And so her parents met the uh, other parents. And interestingly enough, three days before the marriage, her husband flew back. They got married and have a happy marriage, good match, solid marriage. Now that may sound strange to our Western ears, but in many parts of the world this is a common custom. That was how Adam married Eve. It was an arranged marriage. It was common in Christ's day. Christ's marriage himself is an arranged marriage. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Until 250 years ago, that was common even in western lands, pretty typical for courtship. Parents would choose the spouse for the child. Children had little involvement. Then the Romantic Age came. The Romantic period of art, of music, of literature, and of courtship. Now. We've come to the place that parents must not even advise the children during this time of life. We've gone from the time where parents chose the spouse to a time when the parents are not to be involved in the selection. Generations have grown up and followed this type of dating and marriage. But the romantic period is now ending. The front page of the Wall Street Journal signaled the end. It was an article titled, Key to a Lasting Marriage, Combat. It uh, said that there was a growing body of research that suggested that there's no such thing as a compatible couple. 
it uh, said that all couples tend to argue about the same thing across the board. Same arguments. Most disagreements never are resolved. And so they advised that spouses should honor discord. They should not think this was a problem. Good homes were said to be discordant homes. Really, I'm not making this up. This is uh, uh, even some practical suggestions, such things as scheduling weekly arguments. But, of course, if fighting saves marriage, why limit it to once a week? Instruction in fighting was recommended for each spouse. This was a serious article by some of the biggest names in marriage counseling today. Just as the romantic period of music, art, and literature dissolved, people are giving up on marriage, denying that compatible couples exist. The age of romance is gone. We've entered the age of despair. But when the experts conclude that the key to lasting marriage is combat, they prove the truth of Isaiah's observation, the way of peace, they know not. Unless the Lord builds your house, you will labor in vain to build it. I remember making a decision that many of you here are making, some are considering. I determined by God's grace back in college to follow God's plan in dating, in courtship, in marriage. For some of you, you're making decisions, and it was the best decision I ever made to build my life around the Word of God. Some of you are making a decision to begin a godly line, which you did not have the advantage of being from. Others of you are making the decision to continue a godly line. But it's a decision you'll never regret to have a happy home. Our theme is cross. Christian's resources on spouse selection. I'm excited to be sharing this with you uh, this, uh, today for the next three lectures because I've seen the happiness that comes to those who understand and gain the resources available to a Christian. This is a Bible and a Spirit of Prophecy based seminar. Please don't misunderstand me when I quote the latest literature, statistics and research from current sociological and psychological thought, study. I'm not pointing to these studies as determinative or uh, authoritative. I'm just using them to illustrate what God's Word says, and they simply quantify how true it is. If I was going to talk to you about dermatology, skin diseases, I would not be able to cover all of dermatology in the next three hours. I could only cover the highlights, a uh, few of the more common skin diseases. And in a public presentation like this, I can't cover the specifics of courtship, probably for your situation. I can only give the common principles. There are major 
principles of dating that are universal in their application. That's what I want to talk about uh, today. Um, each individual has a unique situation for themselves. And these applications need to be specifically applied to your situation. Wisdom is taking principles and knowing how to apply them. It's not enough to get the ingredients for a cake. You have to know how to mix the batch. And only God can give wisdom. And he wants to give us wisdom. Now, I don't know any of you, or very many of you, few of you I'd know, but not very many of you personally. And the, what I'm saying is not directed at you as an individual. But over the years, I've learned that many face similar problems in courtship. And dating is not just happiness and roses. There's also confusion and heartache and loneliness. Maybe someone here is seeking God's guidance in a relationship that they are in right now. I want to assure you that God will give you direction in, uh, in that relationship. There may be someone here who feels caught in a relationship that you'd like to end. But you feel like you've gone too far, and so the relationship just continues. The Bible can provide direction to escape that trap. There may be someone here who's feeling guilty about a prior relationship or may be hurt. The Bible can show you the way to peace. There may be someone here who is struggling with loneliness. You want a Christian's life companion, but you see no prospects for it where you are. You may feel compelled to accept a non-Christian life's partner. The Bible can bring you fellowship and contentment in the situation you are in. You may be dating a non-Christian and wondering how this relationship will work out. The Bible will give you insights into your situation. These are sensitive and important issues. They involve emotions, affections, our desires and inclinations at the very deepest levels. And yet I've discovered that people have a great deal of difficulty in understanding what they don't want to do. There may be someone here who's secretly struggling in the bondage of moral impurity, indulging in thoughts and actions that darken the life and bring shame and remorse, but are overwhelmingly powerful, seem impossible to break. The Bible can bring you victory and power in the Christian way. Years ago, a king of Israel gave away the secret of dating that leads to successful marriages. Read it with me. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. This is the formula to prosper not only in dating and marriage, but in every area of life. With the books of Genesis and Judges, we find that forbidden marriages and courtship is the sure route to apostasy. And we find in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that obeying God's instruction in courtship and marriage is the sure way to revival and reformation. And we want to carefully examine God's instruction on how to, hap to have a happy home. I assure you we will not be looking at combat training. 
But neither will we let the romanticists guide us. We want the Word of God to guide us, and we'll look to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how little we know. Here I am talking to people with each one with a unique story and a path that you have to bring them happiness and joy in life. Dear Lord, protect my lips from saying one thing that would turn someone away from your way. Speak to them. Use your word. May it be wrapped with power. And may multitudes of happy homes be seen as a result of your time with us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Education, page 41, says, Every want God implants, He provides to satisfy. Hunger prepares us to better enjoy food. Loneliness prepares us for greater appreciation of friendship and companionship. Adam was just a few hours old. And he watched as Jesus made animals. And I don't know exactly what each one looked like, but they begin to be closer and closer to maybe what he imagined a, a, a mate for him to be. And when God came around to the baboon, I wonder if a fear crossed Adam's mind. <laughs> and then a gorilla. But it was always two by two. God reserved for Adam a surprise. But he did not give Adam Eve until Adam felt his need. And until he gave Adam an opportunity to trust him to provide. You see, God just doesn't provide for Adams alone. He wants to provide for us. He sets the solitary in families, the psalmist says. Jesus told his disciples that those who had left family for his sake would receive a hundredfold now in this time. What did he say? Brothers, sisters, mothers, and children. A good wife is such a treasure that God wants to give it to us himself. Solomon says, you may inherit all your own from your parents, but a sensible wife is a gift from the Lord. One of the great blessings that I received in medical school at Loma Linda was a time to study intensely over a period of about three months the principles of God's plan in courtship and marriage. I found that it was a theme in Scripture and in the spirit of prophecy. And then as a result of that study, a group of us, about 90, got together every Friday night for four weeks and we studied the principles of courtship and marriage. Many of us in that group made lifelong commitments that have protected us from some common dangers. The series had a long-term results. A few years ago, I was invited back to Loma Linda to give this series. And uh, I learned the story, the rest of the story, of one of the young people that attended. She had uh, special continuing medical education, 
course to take in San Francisco and so she was going to meet, miss the last of the studies which was on romantic fever, a contagious disease of the heart. And she wanted to come back for that. And so uh, she got a special plane to come back so she would be there in time for the study. Later I became better acquainted with her. In fact, I married her, but she never told me that story. Um, a young fellow in Melbourne, when I was giving this as a series, asked me what I would recommend for how to find a good wife. And I told him, study the principles and then organize a seminar on courtship and marriage. <laughs> but these principles are wonderful. And uh, marriages built on God's word are wonderful blessings. Deuteronomy 12.7, You shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Deuteronomy 7.14, You shall be blessed above all people. But marriage blessings are not automatic. Satan seeks to make marriage a curse. The statistics are dismal. It's likely that in this room, some of you have parents who are divorced. On a plane out to uh, speak in California on this topic, I was sitting by the leading psychiatrist in Canada for marriage problems, and he told me that the latest statistics are 72% of marriages in Canada end in divorce. One time, Jesus was asked a question about marriage and divorce, and his answer was so shocking that his disciples said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Don't think you can disregard God's instruction and do whatever you want and be blessed by a marriage. Deuteronomy 29, 19, And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. Never forget it. The way of the transgressor is what? It's hard. Hard. He gave them their request but sent leanness to their souls. The way of the transgressor leads through Death Valley. God's greatest curse is to give us what we want. Nearly five million men and women will make marriage vows to each other this year. Based on the present trends, 43% of those first-time marriages will end in divorce. The median length of time for instituting a divorce is 6.2 years. And we know that just because a marriage does not end in divorce, it doesn't mean it's happy. A poor marriage is like poor fitting shoes, except you can't just kick them off at the end of the day. Ellen White wrote a thoughtful article on marriage in Review and Herald, and she asked lovers to consider an important question. The path of married life may appear beautiful and full of happiness, but why may not you be disappointed as thousands of others have been? The sentence before this question was the statement, marriage, and I want you to listen to this closely, marriage in the majority of cases is a most galling yoke. But people don't go to the marriage altar trying to be unhappy. 
I've never seen somebody miserable and crying tears of sorrow at the wedding. They go to be happy and they're surprised and disappointed when they find that they are unhappy, often miserable. But a happy marriage is not just a matter of chance or fate. Some people, lucky, some unlucky, some predestinated to be happy or miserable, or perhaps the will of Allah. No. We determine the outcome. You can make or destroy your own happiness. You can make your position happy or unbearable. How? How? The course which you pursue will create happiness or misery for yourself. Our destination is determined by the roads we take. If you turn north, you'll go a different place up Route 5 than if you go south. Your choice. I remember getting a GPS for our Baltimore GYC trip. It came the day we left for Baltimore GYC. And my wife said, that's just sort of a toy, why are you getting it? But um, as we traveled together, and I, I did wonder whether I'd made a mistake, as we traveled together, we discovered how wonderful a guide is. Um, my wife didn't have the GPS last night as she was coming here. So I had to leave the meeting and be her GPS on the phone. And she said, Phil, never, never, never do I want to be out of that car without a, out, uh, without a GPS. You see, we need a guide. And what is the GPS that guides us in courtship and marriage? Adventist homepage 70 says that feeling is the guide for most people. That's the prevailing sentiment. But for the Christian, he will not want to choose for himself, Adventist Home 43, but will feel that God must choose for him. There's a human tendency to consider the grass greener on the other side of the fence. Um, the single, you know what they want to, what's their single wish? If only I could be married. <laughs> Many. And when I talk to married people, you know what they wish? They were single again. Then if they go through a divorce, I never want to be married again, and then pretty soon they can't wait to be married. If you are single, take a hard look at the blessings and opportunities that a single person has. As surprising as it sounds, the first step to a happy marriage is how you live singly. The choices you make as a single have a huge impact on the happiness you're going to experience in married life. If you're single, seek to maximize the opportunities and privileges that being single provides. God's first call to everyone is an unmarried ministry. I read a report that 90 million people in the United States will be single for more than half of their lives. During this time, 
all can learn future home building skills. Jesus asked the question, if you've not been faithful in that which is another man's, who will give you that which is your own? If you are single, seriously ask the question, is God calling me to continued unmarried ministry? Singleness is not simply a holding tank for being married. Singleness is a part of God's plan for everyone's life at some period. Since marriage, however, is a part of God's plan for most, it's easy to overlook, ignore, dismiss, or even despise God's special calling to further unmarried ministry. But before beginning courtship, give adequate consideration to the possibility of future single ministry. Honestly ask yourself, do I need time for further maturation? Do I need further development of important character qualities for greater effectiveness and happiness? Like Adam, is God giving me opportunity to have an increased realization of need and preparation so that I can make somebody a happy marriage partner? There is a difference in having some desire for a spouse and understanding a need for one. Recognition of need, as we've already mentioned, increases our appreciation of the benefit. Is God giving me further time to develop trust in His providing for every need? As a rule, the value of singleness is underestimated. Many accomplishments and inventions occur before marriage. Satoshi Kanazawa, a psychologist with the London School of Economics, researched 280 of the world's greatest scientists. He said this, scientists rather quickly desist from their careers after their married marriage, while unmarried scientists continue to make great scientific contributions later in their lives. This pattern is true across the board in music, art, writing, actually even crime. By the way, he says of himself, I won't be making any major scientific breakthroughs now that I'm in my 30s and married. Very effective men have been called either to single, married, single ministries or later married ministries. Of course, what is true of men is equally true of women. Today, most of us would recognize the names of Ralph Nader, Condoleezza Rice, Supreme Court Justice David Souter. All effective single people. See, singleness is not harmful. It's not something to be ashamed of. Paul called singleness a gift. If you are single, consider yourself singularly gifted. It doesn't stand in the way of anything. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 and 8, I wish that all men were even as my, I myself. Each one has his own gift from God, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Now, would, would Daniel have chosen God's plan for his life, captured, castrated, no children or grandchildren, no family, exiled from his home, cut off from his family? But he accepted God's plan for him. And his single ministry has enriched the rest of the world. 
This possibility should also be considered by those with life-threatening and debilitating physical problems or serious mental illness. Ellen White wrote to her granddaughter Mabel, and she said, I want you to listen to what I'm going to say to you. You must not on no account entertain thoughts of marriage. Such a thing must not be thought of until you have gained a decided victory over the dangers that threaten your physical health. Mabel did listen to her grandmother's counsel. It didn't keep her from getting married. It helped her have a blessed marriage. This is a picture. You can't see it very well. It's the biggest I could get of her husband, Wilford Workman, and herself in 1913, and then her picture in her golden years. She died at the age of 96. Good health. It's obvious the call to further unmarried ministry should be considered by those without current prospects, those called to dangerous travel during times of great social upheaval, war, and insecurity. Paul's counsel in times of emergency was, because of the present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. Now, in medicine, when we diagnose a patient and we're thinking about what prescription to write, we think of whether there are relative contraindications, and then there are some absolute contraindications that under no circumstance do you give that medicine. This is not an absolute contraindication. It's a relative contraindication because Paul quickly adds, if you do marry, you have not what? Sinned. There are, however, four circumstances in which marriage is absolutely contraindicated, forbidden under any and all circumstances. Number one, when the life's partner is not a believer, the Bible injunction is clear. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, Deuteronomy 7, 3, thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy sons. The curse of heaven followed these unions. Noah's flood, the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, these were the consequences of forbidden marriages. The verse answers the question is what should we do if our children choose to marry an unbeliever? We cannot under any circumstances give our permission. We can't give our children away during such a, a ceremony. We are forbidden in any way to countenance such a step. The New Testament is equally clear. We are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We are to marry only in the Lord. The true Christian Adventist Home 68, feels that it would be better to remain unmarried than to link his interests for life with one who chooses the world rather than Jesus and who would lead away from the cross of Christ. The second absolute contraindication is if parents are not in favor of the union. Adventist Home 75, and should that child, notwithstanding the counsel and entreaties of his parents, persist in following his own course, I answer, what's the next word? Decidedly. No, not, read it with me, not if he never marries. The fifth commandment forbids such a course. The third contraindication is if the couple are mismatched, it would be far better not to marry at all than to be unfortunately married. And four, if the couple's are unadaptable. Those who are not willing to adapt themselves to each other's dispositions so as to avoid unpleasant differences and contentions should not take the step.
Well, we've seen singleness is not a bad thing. Christ's favorite home on earth was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Unmarried siblings, close friends with each other, and with Jesus. A sample of what God desires for brothers and sisters. The children of Israel murmured at God's leading through the wilderness. We must not follow their example. Don't murmur and complain if you don't have a boyfriend or don't have a girlfriend. If you're not dating, you don't need to panic. Um, the girl, the only girl I ever met in my life that wasn't planning to be married is now my wife. We can never receive God's best until we leave the decision with Him. Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be, what's the word? Content. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, me. Are you perfectly content to remain single for as long as this is God's will for you? If you are single, will you make this commitment to God just now in the privacy of your mind? Let Him know that you want His best, that you will trust Him with your future. Will you make a solemn and lasting commitment to never date or marry a non-Christian? It is true through the gospel, God can overrule our mistakes, can turn a curse into a blessing. But we have the choice in life whether God is going to be our ruler or whether He's going to be our overruler. And folk, I want Him to be the ruler of my life, don't you? A noted Adventist minister told me, he said, I have seen hundreds of people who were Christians and they married a non-Christian spouse. And the spouse then later became a Christian, joined them in the, the church. But he says, I have never, and I'm sure there's exceptions to this, but he said he had never seen an exception that the Adventist who married the non-believer who then became a Christian. The Adventist who married the non-believer was never as strong as the one who came in. The first step in preparing for marriage is to maximize the opportunities we have being single. But the second step in preparing for marriage is to recognize God's timing. In your book, said David, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God has a plan for his, our life. To everything there is a season, said Solomon, and a time for every purpose under the heaven. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to love and a time to hate. And ladies and gentlemen, the time to hate is not after you're married. There's a special beauty when God's timing is followed. A baby is beautiful, but if the baby never grows up because of arrested development by some disease, it's no longer considered beautiful. He has made everything beautiful in its time. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the uh, ear. It is the very essence of all right faith, 6T24. It is the very essence of all right faith to do the right thing 
at the right time. And Jesus recognized the importance of proper timing. He came in the fullness of the time. He would say, mine hour is not yet come. In his final public prayer, he said, Father, the hour is come. He understood timing and he wants us too. Are you willing, like Jesus, to accept God's timing for your schedule? Or will you be the one in charge of your scheduling? Will you say with David, my times are in your hands? Are you willing to seek to know God's schedule for your life? Do you want to be true, it to be true of you as it was true of the Christians of Rome? You know the time. Man's great danger is to impatiently run ahead of the Lord. The Bible is filled with the accounts of people who ran ahead of the Lord, bringing difficulty on themselves. Um, when I was growing up, everyone was dating. And I wanted to please the Lord. I wanted my, to please my parents. Um, but I didn't understand God's timing. And it's true of life like it is of gravity. Whether I understand gravity or not, it still is there. And I never had success or happiness in doing, even sincerely, that which God's Word, later I learned, God's Word said that is premature. Premature. And little by little, God revealed these principles to me. And at each step, He gave me an opportunity to decide, do I still want to follow Him? I learned God's timing is always better than my timing, and it's become my determined decision to understand and follow God's timing. Isn't that yours? Are you willing to wait on His timing? This is not a small thing in courtship and marriage. Immature marriages are productive of a, what's the next two words? Vast amount of the evils that exist today. Immature marriages. There are things in life that can't be rushed. Pregnancy development can't be rushed. It takes nine months of gestation. Anything less is premature. There's no pill to speed up the process so that you can have a baby in two months. The more premature the birth, the greater the difficulty of survival. If you take a tree and a peach tree, and sometimes it would bloom, but it was too early, and there would be a frost that would kill the bloom, the tree would survive, but the fruit would be damaged. And God wants us to have fruit in His ministry. Just as there are premature births, there are premature courtships and marriages. Often the very first point Ellen White would have to make when counseling couples was that their courtship was premature. She wrote to one, Dear John, this was a, her, her Dear John letter. I am sorry that you have entangled yourself on any courtship with Elizabeth, in any courtship with Elizabeth. In the first place, your anxiety upon this question is, what's that next word? Premature. premature. There are many dangers in premature courtships. First, courtship is by nature exclusive and demanding. If premature, important friendships will fail to form. This may close the doors of future usefulness because who your friends are in as a youth, you would not have a chance to get acquainted with them in later years. 
life's partners who may be God's choice for you might give you no consideration because you're in another relationship. When I go to a store and I'm looking at a book, I will often look at a book that is the shrink wrap. You know what the shrink wrap is taken off, so you look at the book. But the book that I buy will have the shrink wrap intact. Don't allow your shrink wrap to be prematurely taken off. A second problem with premature dating is it may end with a breakup. And former couples are left with regret or blame or guilt or anger. Couples who are once the closest friends end up the hugest of enemies. That was one of the reasons why in college I didn't date very much. I didn't want to lose my friends. And third, this may lead to a marriage. No surprise here. But the risk of unhappy marriage is vastly increased. The Pear Project, which is a long-term study of courtship and marriage, which began in 1981 with 168 newlyweds, had determined by 1994 a very interesting finding. The earlier the couples start dating, the greater the risk of unhappy marriages. Solomon put it this way, Stir not up, nor wake my love till he please. These exact words are repeated three times in the book. The young affection should be restrained until the period arrives when sufficient age and experience will make it honorable and safe to unfetter them. Those who will not be restrained will be in danger of dragging out not just an unhappy marriage, but an unhappy, what's that last word? existence. Restrained. That's a stop word. Unfortunately, this generally requires outside restraint. That's why God gives parents, teachers, and authorities. Because God wants us happy. And to have happiness in marriage, we need both age and experience, but this produces, this gets us to an almost insurmountable problem. Because the too young and too inexperienced almost universally believe that they are sufficiently old and sufficiently experienced. Ellen White wrote a wonderfully insightful letter to an orphaned teenaged boy. Your danger, she said, is increased by the spirit of independence and self-confidence, connected, as of course it must be, with inexperience. You feel that it is time for you to think and act for yourself. I'm a young man and no longer a child. I am capable of, of discriminating between right and wrong. I have rights and I will stand for them. I'm capable of forming my own plans of action. That boy wasn't ready, but what did he think? He was. What is sufficient age? There are minimum standards for obtaining a learner's permit to drive. 14 years old in Kansas. Georgia, the minimum age to obtain a full driver's license, 17 years. Nationally, the minimum age to vote is 18. There are minimum age standards for the Christian in uh, uh, heavenly, in obtaining a heavenly courtship permit. What are they? To understand the Bible's minimum age, we need to understand the Bible periods of life. The Bible divides human life into four distinct age groups. Infancy, 
is under five years old. This is when weaning was to take place. And often there was a special celebration, as in the case of Isaac and Samuel. From the age of 5 to 20 was the biblical period of childhood and youth. It became customary to split this age group into half. Those 12 and over were allowed to participate in the temple services. With the exception of Caleb and Joshua, those over 40, that is, the adults, died in the wilderness while those not yet adults, those under 20, entered the land of Canaan. Those over 20 years old were required to give 50 shekels to the sanctuary support every year. They were considered financially independent. It was not until the age of 20 that men were to be in the army. David was under 20 when he, was, when he killed Goliath. At that time, he was called a lad. He had not been considered old enough to be drafted into the army. The age of adulthood is 20 years old to 60. Those over 20 were now physically mature. They were men. They were old enough to join the army. They were old enough to get married. Now, I don't think the point of this is that you have to be old enough to fight to be old enough to get married. They were old enough to be financially independent and physically mature. The expression men of Israel refers to those who were over 20. They did not have sufficient life's experiences until they were at least 20. They were not financially ready until they were at least 20. They weren't physically ready until they were at least 20. They weren't counted as men until they were 20. Numbers 1, 3, from 20 years old and upward, all that are able to go forth to war in Israel, thou and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Verse 18, they declared their pedigrees after their families by the house of their fathers, according to the number of the names from 20 years old and upward by their poles. And then, of course, over 60 years old was considered old age. Now, how old is the minimum age for obtaining a heavenly dating slash courtship slash marriage permit? For most individuals, though not for all, 20 years old. Solomon Appeal, 52, a youth not out of his teens is a poor judge of the fitness of a person as young as himself to be his companion for life. The Bible suggested minimum age is demonstrated in the literature. An eight-year longitudinal study of married 14 and 15-year-olds was done in Baldwin County, Alabama, a mostly rural county of 200,000 residents. It was published in June 2003 in the American Family Journal. It revealed a divorce rate of 66% within the eight years of the study. The average marriage lasted 3.8 years. The shortest lasted four months. We've already mentioned the prospective pair project study that showed a direct correlation between the age of dating and the risk of divorce. Mike McManus, a president of Marriage Savers and Contemporary Authority on Marriage, observed, those who marry as teenagers have a divorce rate about double those who marry in their 20s. There is a curve of success, just picking age as a factor. Those who marry in the mid to late 20s or early 30s seem to have the most enduring marriages. Maturity is understanding the long-term consequences of momentary decisions. Youth gives a deadly combination of risk-taking plus inexperience. There are increased motor vehicle accidents and injuries. 
Insurance is more expensive for young drivers. Most rental car companies will not rent a car to a driver under the age of 25, or they charge extra fees. Why? Because age makes a difference. Are you at least 20 years old? If you're not, it doesn't matter if society not only allows it, but even encourages it. It doesn't matter that the media flaunt it. It is best to put all thoughts of dating and marriage out of your mind. Yes, of course, there are exceptions to the general rule of thumb, but they are exceptions, and they're virtually always females, virtually never males. And the exceptions are parent-arranged marriages. Adam was only a few hours old, but it was not before Adam had received his education on the care of the garden animals. He had named the animals, and he had a home for his wife. And it was an arranged marriage with limited options. If you truly are the exception, you'll pay attention to material on council in the, uh, in the uh, uh, booklet. We will not have time to cover this in our sessions. Inspired council is always very balanced. Years ago, leaders in the schools were reminded in all our dealings with students, age and character must be taken into account. We cannot treat the young and the old just alike. In medicine, age matters. Before writing a prescription, you determine the age of the patient. The prescription you write for a three-year-old is quite different from the prescription you write for a 93-year-old. You don't treat pediatric patients like you treat geriatric patients. Those are different specialties. Each age group has different needs and tolerances. And in dating and courtship, age makes a difference. Experience makes a difference. Character matters. One size does not fit all. Of course, some much older than 20 are unfit to be married. In one letter, Ellen White noted, Elizabeth will not be as much prepared by cultivated manners and useful knowledge to marry at 25 as some girls would be at 18. What is sufficient experience? Prepare thy work without and make it fit for thyself in the field and afterwards build thine house. Complete your basic education, college, business, or trade school. For your life work, do that before starting your home. You must make sure you're able to support a home before starting one. Those whose primary objective in academy or college is to find a mate have misunderstood the highest purpose of their educational opportunities. Bear in mind, letter 23, 1893, that the school is not a place to form attachments for courting or entering into marriage relations. Why is this so important? In order to act your part in the service of God, you must go forth with the advantage, advantages of as thorough an intellectual training as possible. Under the untimely excitement in courtship and marriage, many students fail to reach that height of mental development which they might otherwise have obtained. These are all in the, in the uh, syllabus. Those who attend all three will get. Ellen White, who was paying for her 18-year-old granddaughter's college tuition, wrote this. She said, in order to obtain the full benefits of the educational advantages offered you, you must keep yourself, what is the next three words? Free from attachments. Is your basic education completed? 
By basic education, again, we're speaking of vocational training. We're not speaking of higher education or graduate school. If your basic training is not completed and you are in your 20s, other questions must be answered to determine your preparation for marriage. How is your education being financed? School's very expensive, and if you are being sponsored or supported by parents, grants, or scholarships, your first responsibility must be to meet the objectives of those who are providing your means of support. Remember, the borrower is servant to the lender. You should have a job or business that can fully sustain a family. That's important for a woman as well as for a man. Solomon described a virtuous woman as one who considers a field and buys it from her profits, she plants a vineyard. Do you think her husband taught her this after she was married? No. Do you think she learned it on, on her own under, in her family? Of course. Um, Rachel was out working on the farm when Jacob met her. Rebecca was taking her home responsibilities when Eliezer met her. Both were now ready to consider courtship and marriage. So God brought this into their lives. And so can you, male or female, financially support a family? If your answer is no, it's premature to consider marriage and the thought should be put out of your mind at this time. Years ago, my son Philip was uh, talking to me in his uh, room and he said, Dad, our family is too strict. Um, none of the other families around here, they're, they're strict like that. And, uh, and he had just studied in, in homeschool. He had just been studying Cambodia, and he knew about the landmines. And so I asked him a question. I said, Philip, if you lived in Cambodia, suppose you had your, your choice of two families to grow in, up in. One family said... Philip, we love you so much, we just want you to just go anywhere. The world is your home. Just enjoy, explore, experiment. So you went out, and of course, uh, your hand was blown up or legs blown off. And for the rest of your life, you were maimed if you were still alive. Or you had another set of parents. And these parents said, Philip, we love you so much, here's a map. This is a kind of a narrow place to walk in, but it's been cleared of minds and you're safe here. Now, which parents do you want to be from? And God is our kind, heavenly Father. He has a narrow way for us to walk. Is it because He wants to restrict us? No. It's because He wants to protect us. Are you thankful that you come from a heavenly family with protection that has wide liberty within high walls. That's, I'm thankful for my Heavenly Father. My uh, parents did not approve of one of the girls that I was dating. And I had to make a decision. Was I going to follow their advice or was I going to go ahead and pursue this relationship? Which seemed so ideal to me. And I thank God that I did what I didn't feel like doing and which I actually thought was wrong. And I absolutely know I saved myself from a, a divorce. This girl today is a Buddhist, has had mental problems. Thank you, 
Lord, <laughs> for your guidance. I desire to follow God's guidance in my life. Will you say with Jeremiah, Thou art the guide of my youth. Will you make David's prayer your own? Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of my enemies. Are you willing to wait on the Lord to be of good courage so he can strengthen your heart? If those are your decisions, married or unmarried, would you be willing to just please bow your heads and would you be willing to put your hands up and then down? Father in heaven, we are thankful for you being a wonderful heavenly father to us. We know so little and the way that seems so right to us can end in death. I pray that as we continue our study together, you will mark these decisions and help us keep them for you. I pray that from this room, as we prayed at the beginning, a multitude of fruitful homes may emerge and be part of the army that take the field under the directorship of Jesus and soon Jesus comes. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.